Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. And today, as always, we have a very interesting guest. Maybe sometime we won't have an interesting guest, but today again, we have an interesting guest, Jordan Fonath. Jordan is a OSINT practitioner. He's a senior analyst at Lockheed Martin. He was a Marine. And I've heard that since once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. So Jordan can talk about that a little bit more. Some interesting things he did in his uh, in his previous life. And I think in this industry, one of the nicest and most helpful people to share their knowledge around. Jordan, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's an awesome pleasure. Yeah, I, I gave you a bit of a, an intro there. Could you tell us a little bit more about who you are, what you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm a senior intelligence analyst for a pretty big defense contractor. So I lead a team of several analysts who are solely focused on threats that exist within the open source space, kind of analyzing those threats, seeing what risk they pose to our organization, kind of like any other analyst, asking the so what with the information we take a look at and providing it to different stakeholders that we have on those risks that we've assessed. So that's kind of the, the high level, like elevator pitch, if you will, for what I do. All right. And like, how did you get into this? Like, where, where did you start out? Yeah. So do you want the, the long version or you want yes. the kind of like summarized version? Okay. All of us want the long version. All right. Perfect. That works. So I, I would like to say that it was a very progressive kind of point for me to get where I'm at right now. So kind of like, like you mentioned, I was in the Marine Corps. I was active duty for five years. I had a pretty unique job in the Marine Corps where I was an infantryman and security forces. So I kind of held two jobs at the same time. And I didn't know this when I joined. I joined just thinking, oh, I'm going to go be an infantryman and I'm going to go to go to war and, you know, do the Marine thing. But when I was in boot camp, I was actually offered an opportunity to join this kind of select program for infantry, infantry Marines to be selected for a top secret clearance and then do presidential support for the president of the United States. And so that originally started uh, when I was in boot camp in 2012. So I signed up for this program. I was approved. And kind of the whole process is once you finish out boot camp, you do your initial training. So I did my infantry training, my security forces training, and then you go to a, what they call kind of a like holding unit in Washington, D.C. It's called 8th and I. It's a ceremonial unit where for about a year, year and a half, you just stand post and stand guard while you wait for your top secret clearance to come in to go through. Once that happens, you kind of have two places that you can go. You can either become a presidential security guard on the presidential retreat in Camp David, which is in central Maryland, or you can go be a security guard for the White House Communications Agency and travel around with the president on all his trips and stuff like that and do some support, our security support for him. And so I was fortunate where I was able to go to both Camp David and the White House Communications Agency. And so I had a really good time, got to go to a bunch of countries, got to travel with a lot of good friends. And so in 2017, I ended up getting out of the Marine Corps and I don't really know exactly what I wanted to do, but for some reason, being a cop just sounded like the natural thing. And I think that's common among a lot of Marines who get off active yeah. duty, especially the infantry ones, like, I'll just go be a cop. And, you know, kind of funny story. And I think this maybe illustrates my arrogance that I probably had as a, as a young adult guy. I didn't really study at all for any of the tests to go be a cop. <laughs> and I was okay. just like, you know what? I'm a Marine. You know, I did pretty good in high school. I can go to, I can just go take these tests without needing to yeah. study for them or anything. And the very first test that I took, I failed. And that was a pretty big blow to my ego because I was like, mm. okay, you know, I'm this Marine and 
you know, I consider myself, you know, somewhat smart and intelligent. I should be able to pass these without studying. And I think that was kind of a point where I was like, do I really want to be a cop? And then I kind of had a career shift. And so I decided, you know, maybe I should go to college, use the uh, post 9-11 GI Bill. I'll go get my undergrad degree in something and, you know, I'll kind of go down that route. And so in the meantime, I knew I needed a job. So I just became a Joe Schmo security guard working nights, being a security guard and stuff like that. And while I was going to school, I did that for about a year and I was actually offered through the contracting company I was doing security work for a uh, opportunity to go to the client that we were working for, which happened to be Lockheed Martin, their global security operations center. They needed some watch officers, which are like very low tier kind of triage work roles. It's kind of like a junior intelligence analyst, if you will. They were having contractors go in and do this work for them. And I was offered an opportunity to be part of that team. I took it. And so um, I went over to Lockheed Martin's GSOC and started working there. Um, I was a watch officer for probably about maybe about two years. I really got exposed to open source intelligence for the first time. The overwhelming majority of our job was not doing OSINT stuff. It was mostly doing very low level triage and analysis of like crisis management incidents and things of that nature. But there was a few individuals at Lockheed Martin who kind of took me underneath their wing. I guess they saw some potential in me. One of them, I'll give him a shout out. He probably listens. His name's Garrett Corey. Right now he's an analyst over at TikTok of all places. Go Gareth. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so he took me underneath his wing and really kind of showed me how I could use open source intelligence in my role. And it really honestly started, I think the first moment was when he exposed me to TweetDeck, of all things, yeah, being able to see stuff on Twitter and be able to put in your advanced searches and your queries and stuff like that, that really kind of lit a fire inside of me to go, wow, okay, this is not only something that's interesting, but it's something yeah. that I'm kind of drawn towards. And so I went down kind of the path of learning more and more about OSINT, different tools and methodologies and stuff like that. I actually ended up applying to a position within Lockheed Martin as an intelligence analyst and got it. I was an intel analyst for probably about a year and a half, two years. And then they brought me on as a lead intelligence analyst. So I picked up that, that senior kind of title, a senior analyst. And so now I'm a team lead for the analytical team. And so, yeah, that's kind of where it started. A very kind of slow progression from being infantry Marine all the way up to where I'm at now. That's so cool, man. I mean, your story, I think, illustrates to a lot of people that you don't have to have a standard background. You don't have to go be a master in international relations or history or political science. And then, you know, you go into as an analyst, right? So uh, that very non-traditional pathway, I really like because it shows people that this is not a one size fits all, or I should say it other way. I think this is not something that you need to have a certain, like, I don't like this word, but pedigree for yeah. to, to do. And and yeah, I, I think you're a, a perfect example of that. So all the power to you, man. And I'd really attribute it to, you know, just kind of, and I would completely agree with you that there is, if you want to call it a stigma in this world, potentially to like kind of people who want to get into the OSINT sphere, kind of this career field that, you know, I need an, an undergrad in, in this and I need a master's in this and I need to have either like intelligence community experience or some type of you know, multiple years of experience working at some company. And I just don't think that's the case, kind of in agreement with you completely, that there is a way to kind of climb the ladder progressively. And if you kind of know where you want to go and you ask the right questions and you're willing to learn and really be humble, the, the world's kind of your oyster and you can make it what you want. I think this is for a lot of different industries, but particularly for this one, in one of the last podcasts I recorded, 
we talked about the fact that this is like kind of like a golden age of intelligence, mainly because of OSINT, but oh yeah, all right. And I think that therefore we're seeing a lot of different people coming into it. And obviously I respect all the other Intel like backgrounds. You know, I, I didn't come from an OSINT, came from a Helint background, but I, I really love it. You mentioned TweetDeck there. What do you think about the fact that they stopped supporting it? at least oh. the API. Yeah, that, so when they first came out and said the API was gonna go to a paid model, initially my mm. entire team, we were pretty concerned because that was one of the many worries we had about the Twitter data we use. I mean, and I could give some background here for everyone listening. Social media is kind of the bread and butter of what my team does. So we're OSINT analysts, but mm. kind of our specialty as a team, as a, as a threat intel team is social media intelligence. That's really where our bread and butter comes from. And so interesting. Yeah. So when we heard that Twitter was making the API paid, initially we didn't see anything that said TweetDeck was going away because that was kind of one of our first concerns. But I think it was probably this weekend, maybe it was Saturday or Friday, I can't remember, but I saw an article saying that TweetDeck is going to move over to the Twitter Blue subscription. Now, fortunately, Twitter Blue isn't all that expensive. So it shouldn't be a big deal to, to get a license and to be able to continue using TweetDeck. But yeah, that was definitely an unfortunate thing to see. It'll be interesting, I think, for our team. I think the biggest impact is going to be on the different tools that we use that take advantage of the free API and whether or not they're going to continue to exist after the API goes to a paid model. That is honestly a, a, a big concern that my team is looking at. We're trying to find out ways where we can mitigate it, either by finding different tools or seeing if there's kind of a native functionality within Twitter or TweetDeck itself. So that's kind of where we're at right now with it. Not to put you on the spot here, but maybe for people who don't know, can you explain what an API is? Yeah, sure. So I'll preference with this. I'm by no means like a software development guy or anything like that. I'm definitely a development literate. So, you know, I can write code and stuff like that. So if I get any of this wrong, you know, don't, don't crucify me, anyone listening. Uh, but no, so an API is an application <laughs> programming interface, and it's a way for you or your machine to be able to reach out to databases and get access to data. So the example with Twitter, everyone knows there's millions of tweets out there in the world. And if you want to be able to access them through other means than just searching them in TweetDeck, you can use Twitter's API, which right now is free. It's going to a, a paid model to be able to pull in and ask for the different types of data you can get from Twitter, the ones that they allow at least, through their API. So it's kind of like setting up a pipeline from Twitter, from their database to your database, and then you can do things with that data. Oh, perfect explanation. I mean, you did it way better than I would, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm interested in the tools, uh, but I, I want to come back to that. Yeah. Something you mentioned about your time as a Marine and, and doing the presidential security and, and travel something that I've talked about and a guest have talked about in the podcast before. I think it's been a while since we talked about it, but during your travels, you know, how, how important was traveling and, and seeing different cultures for you as an analyst? I mean, even more than just as an analyst, I would say as a human being, just being exposed yeah. to, to different cultures and different ways of life and seeing firsthand, I mean, so. I live in the United States, seeing firsthand the privilege that I have of living in a country like the United States where we place certain values at the top, kind of a unique, um, some unique examples, if you'd like. So we were in Vietnam, specifically Ho Chi Minh City, walking around 
just kind of doing the tour saying, you know, we were off work, stuff like that. We were walking around and I was just amazed at some of the things that I saw. I mean, there was street food being cooked on what looked like a hood of an old truck. And it looked like mystery meat. It wasn't wasn't anything that I didn't want to eat because I didn't want to get food poisoning or anything like that. But it, it really kind of set a an example of how good, you know, I have it in the United States and how humble and thankful I should be to, to live and to have grown up in a country like the United States. Uh, another example, uh, kind of a small one was, this is when we were first traveling. We had a layover in Beijing. We were doing a, we were taking a commercial air through Beijing. We had a layover and we were walking around and I noticed every single sign had kind of like Chinese or Mandarin for whatever the sign was supposed to say, but then right underneath it, everything was in English. And it blew my mind because I thought when I was going to travel to all these international countries that I was going to have to worry about translating everything. And that just wasn't the case. I noticed everywhere I went, every country I went, more or less, there was the native language, but then there was also an English translation. And I didn't realize how much of the world made it a necessity to speak English. I mean, I guess it makes sense, you know, hindsight now, but feeling incredibly blessed that I was able to still travel and not have to worry too much about translating things like that. It was just, it was just another kind of humbling experience, realizing how good I have it and how thankful I should be to live and grow up in, in the United States. That's so interesting. Is there any country, maybe it was Vietnam, that what has impacted you most, do you think, from your travels, which country, what experience, if you can say? I would probably say it, it would either be Vietnam or Indonesia. So Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam and then Jakarta and mm-hmm. Indonesia. And it wasn't anything you know, any specific situation or incident, it was just traveling around the country and just seeing, I mean, the poverty that exists in those countries and never really being exposed to that in the United States and never really seeing it firsthand. I mean, you, you obviously you see it on the news and on videos and stuff like that, and it does affect you. But when you see it in person and you're feet away from someone who is in what looks like a third world status, it just affects you differently. And so I would say that would kind of be, and it's not a specific example, but just going through those countries and seeing areas where that are just poverty stricken. And once again, just really showing how humble and thankful I should be. I think traveling, as you said, just to round you out as a human being is very important. But I think for an analyst, especially if you're looking at global threats and global problems insights, I think it's very important to, to understand. You don't have to have deep understanding, but just know the world around you. Yep. So in that regard, I think it's very important. You already mentioned this, but something that I that I wanted to talk to you about. So how does a day look for you on an average day? How does a crazy day look? And what tools do you like? What tools you don't like? Can you go a little bit into that? Yeah, sure. So I'll say every day has a bit of structure where more or less I'm doing the same things, but then depending upon how the world decides to, uh, to act and what things like to occur, my day can go from more or less boring to insanely busy very quickly. But generally, every day, my team has a responsibility to, and I don't want to go into too much detail on this just for sensitivity's sake, but we have a responsibility to look at key threat actors and the actions they're taking, the things that they are mentioning via open source channels, and to assess what risks those communications and, and that information, that data might have to our organization. We also look more generally for kind of new threats. So, you know, in one sense, we're monitoring specific threats, but then in others, we might be more or less monitoring just mentions on specific platforms, whether it be Twitter or you know, Facebook or things like Parler and Gab, Mastodon, stuff like that, any kind of social media 
network it can think of. It might just be monitoring specific mentions to see if there's any threatening or kind of riskful behavior or actions that might be planned. So, I mean, that more or less occurs every single day. That that's a given that I'm gonna that I'm gonna do that, or someone on my team is gonna is gonna have to and, and do that. If we find anything, we might send an intelligence product to to our senior leadership to let them know. Okay, here's what we found from from our monitoring of these threats or these keyword searches. There's something riskful here, or you know, there's really nothing to worry about. Once we kind of go through the initial monitoring to kind of see what's out there, and if we need to look at anything closer, we'll either kind of move on to taking a look at what's going on in the world on a day-to-day -day basis, kind of like what you mentioned on kind of a global footprint to see what risks are out there, whether it be man-made, natural disasters, terrorism. I mean, any type of risk you can think of, we, we try and take a look at it and see how it could affect our organization. And so from there, it really kind of depends on how the world is acting. So, I mean, to give you a couple examples, here in the United States and Ohio, there's a pretty big train derailment right now that is causing a pretty big ecological disaster, it looks like. And so mm -hmm. that's something we look at for potential risks to our organization. We look at everything from the kind of recent and joked about Chinese balloon incident and all the supposed <laughs> UFOs being shot down over the United States to, and how those might risk our organization. So that's, it, it kind of depends on what's going on in the world that makes our day kind of busy or quiet. I will say in the past couple of years, there have been a lot more busy days than there have been quiet days with, with yeah. everything going on in Ukraine, stuff from COVID and stuff like that. It definitely has made our days a lot busier, but kind of like what I said to you, you know, off air, I, I kind of enjoy the busy days because it makes the day go by a little quicker um, yeah. and it really adds a lot of value to kind of what I'm doing, that, that assurement that what I'm doing makes a difference. And then you mentioned tools. So, yeah. I mean, I think this is kind of like every OSINT analyst's kind of favorite thing in a way, like, you know, how guys like to talk about sports and, and cars <laughs> and, and, you know, if you're in the military, you talk about guns. I think OSINT analysts like to talk about tools a lot, which I'm all for it. I think tools are awesome. I don't think they're at the end all be all what it means to be an OSINT analyst. But yeah, I, I could talk about tools all day long. Go ahead. Yeah, right. Uh, something on a previous podcast you had, it might have been maybe one or two podcasts ago, you're talking to a guest and forgive me, I can't remember his name, but uh, he mentioned one of his favorite tools was just using Google dorks. And I cannot agree. I cannot agree anymore ben, with, with that. Yeah. But, yeah. Benjamin yeah. I, when he said that, I, it felt like he was speaking to me because mm -hmm. I think Google dorks are looked over often because yeah. they're pretty simple. They're not, you know, that complex, but I will say if you were to look at the tools I use throughout the day, Google Dorks is definitely the most common one. I mean, so much so that I use it in my personal life when I'm looking up things on Google and I know I need to find a specific file type for something or I need to look for a specific phrase. I'll use, I'll use a Google Dork to do it. So Google Dorks all day long. I think the amount of information that Google has been able to capture and using something as simple as a Google Dork to really refine the query that you want to find the information that you need I think is amazing. And so I think any OSINT analyst who, you know, is worth their salt would, would really be wise to uh, leverage Google dorks. And once again, I know it's a kind of an elementary tool for OSINT analysts to use, but it's something I use every single day. And so, yeah, that's kind of the number one tool that I definitely use is Google dorks. Another tool I use, it, it's funny, it's not necessarily a tool, it's more of a library of tools. So it was actually created by, I think his name is Micah Hoffman from the OSINT Curious Project, um, one yep. of the founders from there. He, he created what's called the Smart Tool, which is essentially an aggregation library 
of a bunch of start me pages that use OSINT tools. So if anyone listening doesn't know what a start me page is, it's pretty much a big web page that holds links uh, of whatever you would like. It could be recipes, it could be OSINT tools, it could be whatever you want, but it's essentially a big library of links. And there's multiple start me pages. I mean, there's dozens, if not potentially hundreds of start me pages that are dedicated to OSINT tools. And so he created one tool that aggregates all of these OSINT start me pages into one tool, into one library. And so if there's ever, you know, a need for me to find a tool or some type of function that I just currently don't have, that I don't have bookmarked, I'll go to his kind of smart tool and I'll look it up. So if I need some type of collection tool for Instagram or TikTok or something like that, I'll go to his smart me page or his smart tool and I'll type in TikTok, I'll type in Instagram and it pulls up all of the Instagram or TikTok tools that are located in all of these start me pages. And so that is a very easy way to find the tools that I need. So it's kind of a tool of tools, if you will. A Swiss army knife. Yeah, that's a, real, that's a really good way to think about it, you know, because I know for me, when I first got into OSINT, and I think a lot of people would probably share this experience, there's a litany of tools out there and you just don't know what to use for kind of right. what purpose and stuff like that. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of like information overload with the tools. And having one source to go to, to find, you know, a tool I might need, it, it makes my job a lot easier and allows me to focus more on my work and less on trying to find tools that aid me in my work. So yeah, there's that one. And that's, I had two more I actually made note of before I came on. So I mentioned Twitter a lot. Uh, so my team, we love Twitter just because of how many people on there and how much data is there. This shouldn't come to any surprise for anyone who's been in the OSINT sphere for a while. TweetBeaver is probably my second go-to tool. Just with the amount of functionality it provides from the Twitter data, being able to see, you know, very quickly relationships between accounts or mentions of certain keywords by specific accounts. Those are just a few examples that we use it for. Now, the downside that TweetBeaver is, and I hope this doesn't happen, with the Twitter API going to a paid model, TweetBeaver tweeted uh, a week ago, a few weeks ago, that they were going to shut the tool down. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope, you know, they figured out a way to either get the data through another means that isn't through the API or they pay for the API. And I'll be honest, I'll pay for TweetBeaver if they need a yearly license so I can continue to use it. So TweetBeaver is definitely a huge tool we use. And then another tool that I don't really think is necessarily an open source intelligence tool, it's more of kind of a workflow aid is if this, then that, or IFTTT. We use it for kind of helps with some automation things. And an example you can use for if this, then that, uh, it's kind of describing the name. You set up conditions for different web applications to perform different actions. So it's, it's derived in the name. If something occurs on a web application, then do this, essentially. So a common use case, you could use it for Telegram or Twitter. You could say, you know, if a specific user tweets, send me an email. That's a very simple kind of workflow you can use for if this, then that. And that kind of can be used for teams who maybe don't have a huge budget for automation tools, but they need some level of automation because they're, what they're doing is scaling bigger than what they can do manually. And so IFTTT can be a, a huge tool you can leverage that can aid in kind of your automation. Um, and the best thing is it's free. So that, that's another kind of huge tool that we use. All right. That's a really good one. Because we use Zapier, which is like a paid version of that. Yep. It's like, you can also like, web hooks and all kinds of different functions together. Oh yeah, that's really interesting. I'm going to check that out even myself. You mentioned uh, Michael Hoffman. I think I'm a big fan of Ocean Curious and, uh, oh, yeah. and, and what they do. 
And uh, I think he's the only guy who said no to me to come on the podcast. So guys, <laughs> if you if you want to have Michael Hoffman on, send him messages. I say that he needs to come on, guys. But no, I, I still respect the hell out of him and and, uh, and what they do. All right. Question that maybe goes like across like how, how you work and what you do. First off, what, what, what makes you get up in the morning about what you do right now? That's a really good question. You know, it's funny. When I was preparing for this, I did not expect you to ask me that question. That's a really good question. I like that. I would say <laughs> the most fulfilling part of my job, it's one, it's the job itself, what I get to do. So I'm, I like to think I'm just naturally an analytical person. So being able to look at data and interpret its value and its risk to my organization, for some reason, I, I really am kind of drawn to it. So just the work itself is, is something that I enjoy. And I think a lot of OSINT analysts would probably agree, you know, knowing that your work has an impact on either an individual basis or for the organization as a whole. So if, if I find a, a new threat, a new a potential new risk to the organization and we build a product together and we do send it to our, our senior leadership and finding out a week later that it mitigated some potential hazard from occurring or we've discovered something that no one else really knew about, that is kind of the most rewarding thing, knowing that w without either myself or my team's involvement in looking at a potential threat, something bad could have happened. And so it really adds not only like a value to the day-to-day -day work, but knowing that when things are boring, that the work I do is critical. So that's kind of like the work side of it, like the actual job. I will also say that I'm insanely thankful to have the leadership that I have. They give us a lot of, a lot of rope to kind of pursue what we think needs to be pursued. They, they're not really hamstrung on holding us back, not having us pursue certain kind of rabbit holes and trends. They're very open to new ideas, which for an OSINT analyst, I think is awesome. So I, I'm, not, I'm not gonna say I have free reign, but if I can point an action or a new initiative back to preventing threats and risks, to the organization, more or less, I get the green light for it. And being in an organization that is that open to kind of advancement, whether it's looking at, you know, how we can use AI and ML, or if it's a new kind of social network that we need to start expanding into, applying resources so we can get new capabilities. Having leadership that has our back wholeheartedly makes the job a lot more rewarding because I'm not, I'm not really worried every day about, okay, is this something that I'm going to put a lot of effort and work into and then have my leadership, or our stakeholders kind of shun down or, or shoot down on us and say, okay, you can't focus on that. That's never once happened. So just being in that environment is awesome, frankly. Amazing. That's good because, I mean, that's what you need, right, to grow and to develop. And where, where do you see bottlenecks? Where would you yeah. wish, you know, things could go better? Or you see like maybe deficiencies or, or gaps. Yeah, I think, and this doesn't necessarily even like apply to my team solely. I think this could probably be pretty applicable for a lot of OSINT analysts. Um, and you, you can call this a couple different things. You can call it expectation management for stakeholders, requirements management, things like that. But it's working with the key leaders that you have and making sure that they have a clear understanding of what your team's capabilities are, what you can do but also understanding what they want from your team. I, I think, and especially working in big organizations, maybe not for smaller kind of consulting firms and stuff like that, but 
teams who are part of a huge organization where there's a lot of leadership and it appears like there's lots of red tape, being able to clearly understand what your leadership's requirements are of your team, I think can be a bottleneck. I think there's a, a probably a lot of threat teams out there or threat analysts who more or less kind of have a very kind of open purpose for what their team is supposed to do and their leadership maybe doesn't necessarily know what that team should be doing. And I think it's up to either the leaders on that team or the managers of that team to really reach out to that to those leaders, those key leaders who, I mean, frankly, control budget of all things um, and make them understand or at least allow them to understand what that team's capabilities are and how they can benefit an organization. Um, I, I've seen it several times, you know, talking with other analysts, they feel a little bit hamstrung because their leadership doesn't understand fully what the team's capability is. Um, and they don't necessarily have clear requirements from the leaders on what they want to do. Uh, I know, I know there's a few teams where their senior leaders are more focused on other initiatives and the threat Intel team is kind of, it's there, but they don't really focus on it too much. And so they don't get a lot of the attention they need from the requirements from their key leaders. And so I, th I think that's one bottleneck is not having clear requirements from the leadership and not maybe not asking that leadership or that specific leader, you know, what the team needs. So that's one bottleneck. Another one I see is, and it's kind of associated with it, is expectation management with what a threat intel team can do. Now, yeah. I understand this completely depends on the organization you're in, what specifically you're doing. But I mean, I'll be honest, I get RFIs all the time of stakeholders wanting us to do something and they're, they either don't provide clear guidance on what specifically they want us to do or the ask is just so extreme that you kind of have to jump on a call with them and say, hey, that's not a capability the team has. You know, I think there's some stakeholders and some leaders in the world who maybe aren't as spun up on what open source intelligence is. That when they hear they have this OSINT team that can do things online, they think they have exposure to every piece of data, you know, every piece of information that is on the internet, and they expect them to have it, you know, um, at a single second, be able to find it and, and send it over to them. And I, I think there's a clear conversation that needs to happen between analysts and those stakeholders about, you know, what the team actually has exposure to and what their capabilities actually are. There's been a few times joking with with colleagues where. Uh, we've said some of our stakeholders think we're members of the intelligence community, like we're the NSA and we can just start tracking cell phones and, you know, pulling all this data, figuring out where people are at and stuff like that. And, you know, if that's not a capability your team has, you need to make sure your leaders understand that's not a capability your team has. And there's nothing wrong with that, but your leaders need to understand what your capability is so they have clear expectations for what you, you can provide them. I really love that answer. I really do, because I think not just for your role, um, I think from like smaller firms, so like ours and, and others, and in government, I see this, right, where there is this misalignment between analysts and, and leadership yeah. that they have like expectations that cannot be met. Even if you had the, the capabilities, you don't have the people, you don't have the time. So yeah, the, I think that's a really, really good one. And I think it's, as you said earlier, from a leadership perspective, it's our duty to communicate that either with client, any intelligence consumer, yep. to communicate, you know, what you can and cannot do, which is, yeah, I really like that uh, answer because that's something that I think a young analyst maybe don't know. And because you're in a more senior position, you would understand this because you encountered this. Yeah. Thank you for that. Maybe an extension of, of, of my, my earlier question, 
Is there anything that keeps you up at night? Yeah, I think any analyst could probably answer this with the same question. It's, you know, what are the unknown unknowns out there in the world? And I, I think, you know, that's, that's a very clear cut answer. But, you know, I won't, I won't just give you a simple answer. I'll give you kind of a more personal one. Mm-hmm. You know, what keeps me up at night is, is my team or am I as an analyst, am I getting better every single day to meet the threats that exist in the world? And that, that's very kind of like high level and super, not to say superficial, but it, it's kind of like a high level response. But, you know, am I doing enough every single day to make sure that the threats that exist in the world, I, I, can, I can see them and I can analyze them? for what they are am i doing enough am am i leading the team in a way that puts them in the right position to be able to do our job kind of you know being a team lead i'm more focused on the team as a whole not necessarily like my own capabilities i would say and so i would say what keeps me up at night is knowing or hoping that you know i've done all that i can as a team lead for my team to make sure they're ready for the threats that we encounter whether that's you know making sure they have the right skills or making sure they're exposed to things so they have the right experience or if it's just kind of like mentorship just taking them aside and walking through you know specific lessons learned about an incident or about a threat am i doing enough so i would say that kind of keeps me up keeps me up in the middle of the night if you will yeah that's a great answer too you're hitting on out of the park uh, jordan so oh thank you i think what may be good and i think but particularly looking at your experience and, and, and your journey, what would you advise either young people or being people that are maybe in a different industry, so they want to make a switch or, or even people that want to build an intelligence capability. So maybe my, my question is a bit long, but if I had to cut it up in three parts, what would you advise somebody, a young person that wants to get into it? What would you advise somebody maybe that wants to make a career switch like what you did? And what would you advise to an organization that, that wants an intelligence capability? Yeah, no, those, those are awesome questions. I would say for someone who is young and they know they want to get into this space, they just don't necessarily know how. And, it, you know, it's funny. I've been asked this question at least a half a dozen times over the past couple of years by, you know, different college grads on LinkedIn. Like, hey, I see what you do. You know, I want to do something more or less the same. Something I tell them that might be a little more pragmatic is understand that, you know, you're not going to be able to just walk onto a threat intel team with, with little to no experience and just your undergrad and, and, and start contributing. That's at least been in my experience. Find ways where you can kind of get your skin in the game and earn your keep and show a team that you're capable of, you know, something more. And so personally for me, that was me being a contracted watch officer, more or less an, a junior intelligence analyst, doing work that I would describe, you know, it wasn't awesome. I, I didn't go into work every single day excited like I am today. Um, I didn't see a lot of meaning in the work that I was doing. And that was just because it was such low-level triage work that, you know, I didn't see a lot of meaning in it. But I saw kind of where that job could lead. And I saw teams doing awesome things that I wanted to do. And I knew if I kind of stuck it out and I made a positive impression doing kind of this, this crappy work, if you will, I knew that in the end, I would be afforded an opportunity to jump on one of those teams doing the work I actually wanted to do. And, and that actually worked out. And so pragmatically for the, those newer kind of college grads, I would say try and find a, a GSOC or some type of contracting company who's providing some type of analytical capability 
to a big client and see if you can jump on one of those teams. In, in my experience, they're not necessarily looking for a lot of experience. They just need someone who's living and breathing and who can think rationally to have their butt in a chair and be able to, to do some work for them. And so I think if that young grad is willing to stick it out for a few years, kind of, you know, slug it out in the trenches, show that they're capable, show that they're willing to learn and show that they have lots of potential, I think they would see very quickly that, you know, a lot of opportunities will open up to them. And kind of in addition to that, and this, I might loop this in between the, the young kind of new grad and someone who wants to change careers. And I actually made a post about this on LinkedIn earlier last week is, yes, you know, you want to be an OSINT analyst or you want to kind of get into this world, but find something that you find interesting that can aid you as an analyst. It could be, you know, if, if you have an aptitude for languages, you know, maybe you become a regional subject matter expert, if you will, on whatever kind of language you want to speak. So if, if you want to speak, you know, or if you want to, you have a, some type of aptitude toward learning Mandarin and you want to become kind of a China expert, more or less, awesome. Go down that route while you're developing your kind of generic OSINT skills. Also become kind of, you know, the China or the Asia Pacific SME, if you will. Personally for me, I'm a like self-proclaimed data nerd. Like I will admit, I'm, I'm kind of a data nerd, data geek guy. So data science and machine learning was a very easy transition for me. And I've been able to take kind of my aptitude for science and machine learning and have it benefit my team. And so I would say find a skill, a region, it could be a threat actor or a group and focus on that. Focus on that and become an expert at it. So that way you can show an organization you know, not only am I developing as an analyst, but I also have a capability that I can bring. I have a set of knowledge that I can bring to the team that no one else really has. And it helps you kind of stand apart. So yeah, I would say that for kind of young guys trying to get into the club and, and the career kind of shift people. I would also say for the career shift, something I did when I got out of the military that I found pretty fruitful was using LinkedIn. I didn't mean for LinkedIn to become a, a big part of kind of what I do for work as it is, but it's, it's honestly a huge part. And I've been able to make some amazing connections and find some awesome information through LinkedIn of all places. And so what I would suggest to someone who's wanting to do a career shift is find the big names in OSINT or the big organizations, whether it's, you know, SANS, the OSINT Curious Project, or like open source intelligence techniques, and find the key leaders in those organizations, in those groups, and, you know, follow, follow them on LinkedIn or, or reach out to them and see if you can ask them a few questions and kind of grow your network and, and see, you know, where opportunities might, might exist. You know, I'm not saying it's going to be, you know, you join LinkedIn and then you follow a few people and the next day you start getting job opportunities. But if you just kind of stick with it and grow your network, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, over a year or so of kind of me being very diligent and growing my network on LinkedIn, there's at least a handful of people I know I can go to right now who I've never met, but we have somewhat of a relationship on LinkedIn that I can go to and say, hey, do you have any job opportunities either for myself, another team member, or maybe, you know, some, some kid that, I, that I'm mentoring who's getting ready to graduate college who wants to get into the this, into this space. And so having that at hand um, is priceless. I second that. That's how we met. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and, you know, kind of a side note on LinkedIn, I didn't expect the amount of tools that I'd be exposed to through LinkedIn. It's insane. The it's almost like LinkedIn's becoming kind of a source for OSINT tools. I mean, people are going in Absolutely. there every single day Absolutely. and saying, hey, here's this new Python tool to, to collect this or to see this, or here's this new library of tools or this new person 
I've been exposed to so many tools and so many resources through LinkedIn. It, it's amazing, frankly. So I would say to you know the OSINT analysts out there, whether you're new, kind of mid-career, or you want to start up kind of a threat intel team, being on LinkedIn and being exposed to the OSINT community is, is awesome. Speaking to kind of the people who want to start an organization, and we, we talked about this earlier, I think it's absolutely critical that those leaders or those individuals need to have very, very, very clear requirements on what they want that team to do. I, I, I think there might be some leaders out there who heard about OSINT from, you know, everything going on with the war in Ukraine and how popular OSINT's been. And they say, oh, you know, OSINT's a sexy new buzzword. We need an OSINT team. I don't know what I want them to do, but we need one of those. I don't think that's the right approach. Those leaders and those individuals need to have very clear requirements about what risks they know exist or that they need to mitigate and build a team around those and set very clear requirements for what they want that team to do. Because if you have a team that has very open requirements, you know, you're probably not going to have satisfactory results that you want. But if you set very clear requirements and KPIs for what you want that team to do and how you're going to measure their performance, it's going to set you up for success. Perfect. Thank you so much. Because that's something that the last question is something I'm, I'm asking people now more and more because that's something that we are providing. And I think the, the number one question that I get is like, how can, how can we use intelligence across the board, not just OSINT and human or even God forbid, SIGINT? How can we use intelligence at all to improve or to reach our strategic goals? And when that's the question, when that's the goal, I think that's really good because that's what intelligence can do, yep. right? But protect us against any type of scandal, you know, that's very difficult, right? Yeah. And you can, as you know, you can mitigate, you can, you can minimize and, and, and protect and have plans in place, but that's very difficult. But I, I do like, there's a lot of leadership not just necessarily at the top of the company, but heads of department and particularly from hard security that are coming to us and saying, Hey guys, can you help me convince my key leaders that we need this and how that could impact the business, not just from threat perspective, but from opportunity perspective, yep. how can we use intelligence to, to get more opportunities? And I think in that regard, intelligence is really positioned well to, to take more steps. Before I go into the, what are you reading? What are you listening to? And, and all that stuff. Do you have a question for me? Ooh, you know, that is, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I would say, so from your perspective, your history and your experience, if you were to start over from scratch, but you, you know, everything you know, right now, would you go about anything differently? You take different approaches, you'd focus on different things, or, you know, maybe you go to school earlier or later, or you, you know, you take a military route or whatever, knowing what you know now, would you change anything? And if you would, you know, what would you change or what would you focus on? That's, a, that's an excellent question. I didn't know you were going to hit me with that. Uh, that's a very difficult question because my experiences have made me to who I am today. and I'm pretty happy with who I am. Yeah. Um, obviously we can all do better, you know, and the, the grass is always greener on the other side and, you know, there's always more, but a couple of things I would say, I started my career off in finance, right? And I think I did it for all the wrong reasons. And when I graduated, I was thinking about like, you know, how can I like make money? How can I like have, you know, a good life? And I think also it has to do with the fact that 
you know, I grew up as a small kid. We were, we came as refugees from Somalia to the Netherlands where I grew up. And I think like that feeling of, of like losing everything and not having anything and growing up, you know, with, with like barely nothing. And I, and I have, I have to put this also in perspective that I was still in a very affluent, you know, first world country. But having said that, I think if I, because I identified at a young age what my passion was and what my passion was was history, which for a lot of analysts is what they're passionate about when they're growing up. I, I think that's one thing that unites a lot of, uh, especially around strategic intelligence and geopolitical uh, topics. So I would have studied not finance. I would have studied probably history and I would have made a lot less money. But, but I think from a passionate perspective, I think that would have been better for me. That's one thing. But on the other hand, knowing what I know today, I would have started way earlier with cyber. Like, yeah. um, so I'm in the infosec side of things too, outside of what we do with irregular warfare with great dynamics and those focus areas. But, and which cyber is one of them, by the way, but that's something I would have done way earlier. I would have gotten more certifications. I wouldn't got a lot more exposure to it. My, my older brother works in that industry and I could have done it, but I, I was very afraid because I was like, Hey, I'm not that great in math. And you know, I don't have this, maybe I don't have the best backgrounds or technical abilities. And I did at the time, obviously I didn't know about threat intelligence and yep. I like more softer skills that you need for cyber. But that's one thing I would have done differently. Other than that, I'm pretty happy. You know, I, I went a bit of a different route and, you know, got into humans, which was interesting, particularly around counterterrorism. And it keeps pulling me back into that world. But yeah, cyber is one. It's a huge one. For my new analyst that I talk to, that I guide from the internship, but also ones that reach out to me on LinkedIn or anywhere else, that's what I tell them. You know, if you have an aptitude or interest in it, try data as you know, as you're interested oh, yeah. in data analytics and, and machine learning or geospatial intelligence. But for me, like what I really mo most enjoy is cyber. So, so that's something I would have done way earlier. Gotcha. Yeah. And so a follow-up to that. So cyber, and I think like OSINT, there's a question like, okay, how do you start? And so for like, would, for you, do you think, I mean, personally for you, the best would have been to, to go to school and to get your degree in computer science or, you know, information technology, or do you think it would have been better for you to go down the route of like, okay, I'm just going to focus on getting my security plus and then, you know, my, my CISP down the road when I have some more experience. And then, you know, maybe if I get a degree, I'd get it, but I want to more focus on, on certifications over the degree. I would say I would have focused more on the certification over okay. the degree, yeah. right? Also from there's so many areas in cyber, right? So for me, I would, I would lean more towards two ends of cyber, one being threat intelligence, which we already do. So from what I hear from a lot of leadership in, in, in the cyber industry, they say that there's a lot of people that know the technical skills. There's not many that know how to communicate those technical skills into reports that are readable to leadership. And, yeah. and, and answer the so what, how, when, why. And I think that analytical perspective, critical thinking, how do you translate a threat to the company? Like how could you, how could you help leadership better as an analyst? I think 
that's kind of missing at the moment in, in, in the, in the cyber industry. And so I think from, from that perspective, I would say there's a really good opportunity for people with non-technical backgrounds because the technical skills you can learn. Yep. You don't have to reverse engineer malware, right? There are like guys to do that already. And there's a lot of, which is fantastic too. The other one is red team. And that's like what I find really interesting. So organizations reach out and they want to know like the full scale of what, what will the red team exercise mean for us? So not just like trying to breach their networks or, or their, their emails or anything like that, but also what would mean red teaming from a personal perspective? Hey, you know, if, if you would meet one of our people in a bar, would they say something, right? Or would they carry their badges around in the subway in London? You know, so these are so far more in-depth and, and me and a friend, we, we do some, some work around that. So that's for me, like, I think that's really cool. And you can use a lot of your people skills if you are a former military or a law enforcement or anything where you get that type of exposure, where you have to talk to a lot of people and and understand how people think. So I think there, those two areas, I think, are open to people that may have not have a, a technical background. I don't know if I would have studied computer science. I'll be really honest with you on that. Yeah. I, I know when I was looking at my graduate degree, so I'm getting my graduate degree in data science, and I was looking back like, man, do I regret not getting a computer science undergrad? And the whole reason why I didn't was honestly because of the math. The programming, I probably would have enjoyed, but just knowing yeah. I had to go all the way up to like Calc 1 or Calc 2, I did not want to go through that again. I mean, I took that in high school. I don't, Fair. I don't want to do it again in college because, you know, family and yeah. stuff like that. I didn't want to dedicate that much time to it. And so, yeah, that, that was the only holdback for going down a CS route. I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and I think data science is awesome. I'm a data geek myself. And I, I really enjoyed it. So I think you did a great job and there's so much opportunities there. And, and today to have, you know, a strong data science background is an absolute, it's a top skill, you know, oh, so yeah. from a practitioner perspective, but also from a leadership perspective, because, you know, you can help your team, uh, I think really well, particularly if they're dealing with a lot of data sets as in social media intelligence, for example. All right, Jordan, man, I can talk to you for hours. Likewise. And, you know, we're definitely going to talk more offline, but my final question to you, some, some cultural recommendation it doesn't have to be an intelligence can be or security. What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching? Yeah. So I'm, I regret to say this, but I haven't read a book in like a year and it is not by <laughs> my choice. So Fair enough. for everyone listening. I have a two-year-old and a six-month-old at home. So there Jeez. is, yeah. So the, the free time that I have is pretty much Bless soaked you, up man. spending it with them. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and that's totally fine. You know, I, I would look at, you know, spending time with my children as a bigger priority than, than reading books as much as I, I would like to. And so I take advantage of the free time that I do have, which pretty much boils down to driving to and from work or working out. And all I can really do during that time to try and get exposed to new information is listening to podcasts. And so. It's not ideal. You know, I'd rather listen to books. I think there's lots of, of benefits you can get to reading a book over a podcast, not just absorbing new information, but, you know, I don't have that luxury right now. So the podcast that I, you know, I do listen to, 
I listen to, th- to this podcast every single time it comes out. I mean, I have the notifications turned on for great dynamics. So the second it turns mm-hmm. on, you know, I know, yeah, I know either the next workout that I'm going to go to or the next time I'm driving to work that, you know, that's what I'm going to listen to. But I also listen to Jane's has an awesome podcast where they focus a lot on OSINT and a huge fan of what Jane's is and, you know, what they're doing with their organization. But then Life Raft has one that's called Talking Threat Intel. And then Shadow Dragon has a podcast that I, that I listen to as well. So those are kind of the, the big kind of like Threat Intel or OSINT podcasts that I listen to. And it just provides either insight into what I already do that I'm, I might not have had or exposure to other kind of other people who use OSINT in their job, but maybe don't do it in the same way I do. So talking like CTI analysts or executive protection analysts, stuff like that. It, it's an awesome exposure to, to those other roles and trying to get an idea on what they focus on. And in the end, that helps me because, you know, I work with some CTI analysts. I work with some EP folks. And so if I can listen to a podcast about, you know, what EP does, what executive protection does and what they need from their analysts, well, then that helps me better serve the, the EP folks that I work with at work or the CTI guys at work. So those are the podcasts I listen to. Shows. So, you know, I'm not a huge TV guy. I usually watch whatever my wife kind of wants to put on TV. And so there's a pretty popular TV show called You. Oh, yes. Yeah, like, yeah, my wife loves that show. And so same, you know, I sit, same I sit on the couch and I watch that with her. I wouldn't necessarily yeah. say it's, it's my choice to watch it. But mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's kind of currently what we're watching. There are worse things to watch. I can tell you that part. That is very true. Yes. That is very true. <laughs> uh, since you love that type of podcast, uh, one that, that I'm a big fan of is the Darknet Diaries. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, I think I've heard yeah. of that, actually. It's, I, need, I need to add that. Yeah, Darknet Diaries. I mean, the production value is amazing. And uh, I promised somebody that I spoke to about to do this, but another one that it's... A com- it's basically like a story. So it's a podcast with set episode. And then after that, it's done that I really, really enjoyed. And I was kind of like addicted to it is the winds of change. I never heard of that. Yeah. A bit of background on the winds of change. The winds of change is a very, like it's a, it's an iconic song by a German band called Scorpions, I think. And it was about like the end of the Soviet union and like coming together and peace and uh, winds of change, right? So the rumor or the rumor goes that the winds of change was written with the help of the CIA. And it was a, it was basically a side. That's the, that's the rumor. <laughs> and the guy who produced the podcast presented, he does an excellent job. And he basically tries to piece it all together, speaks with like former CIA people, he speaks with members of the band and yeah, it's a whole journey through multiple countries. It, it's really, really well done. Like, like awesome. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. That sounds yeah. interesting. It's, it's, it's really, yeah, it's really pretty cool. So that I can recommend. Jordan, any like final thoughts from you? Yeah. Just one thing. And I would say this to the people who are like myself, who, you know, they're not in a position, you know, direct like leadership, but they, they're overseeing a team of analysts. Something that, that I have learned recently that's been a huge benefit for us is relationships with other analytical teams within your organization and, and, and fostering and creating those relationships can be very beneficial. And so something I know I'm focusing on specifically this year is trying to kind of foster and build the relationships with the different analytical teams within my organization, whether it be you know 
cyber folks or you know counterintelligence folks and stuff like that. There's been a few situations and, and examples that, that we've gone through where we've had a kind of a mutual a kind of shared investment and a threat and you've kind of fostered those relationships. And so I would say, you know, those kind of like mid-level leaders, those those team leads, focus on building those relationships because they're going to be very beneficial if you come across a threat or a specific RFI. And, you know, maybe you need a, a cyber kind of perspective on this because it has a cyber taste to it. Or maybe you need a counterintelligence or an executive protection perspective on it. And so I would really focus on building relationships with the teams that you don't work with directly, but that, you know, you kind of have a, a mutual kind of agreement or with work on. So that'd be kind of my last little tip, I guess. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jordan. It was an absolute pleasure. I feel always, uh, I learn a lot when, uh, when I speak to you. So keep doing great work and, and, and sharing your ideas. Where can people find you if you want to be found? Yeah, so uh, definitely LinkedIn. I mentioned that before. That's honestly yeah. the best way to get a hold of me. I love talking to anyone on LinkedIn about OSINT. So feel free, reach out to me on LinkedIn, you know, just the name Jordan Ponaf and uh, shoot me we'll a message. We'll share it too. We'll yeah. share oh, it in perfect. the show notes. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, so feel free to reach out, shoot me a message. I'd love to talk to anyone. Perfect. Again, Jordan, thank you so much. And for everybody listening, if you made it this far with us, thank you. Really appreciate the support. Guys, if you're listening to the podcast like Jordan is, please, you know, give us a review. You know, I want to know what you think. I want to I want to make it better. And and if we deserve it, you know, give us five stars. We work hard at it. You know, but again, thank you for all the support and really appreciate it. And this podcast has brought me closer to people that I really wanted to always talk to, like Jordan and, and other guests. So yeah, thank you all. And I'll speak to you on the next one. Jordan, have a good one and talk soon, man. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone.